the History Show with Maz Duncan. Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme... They established their headquarters in the dining room. They sandbagged the windows and stuck guns out between the bags. We look at the outbreak of the Irish Civil War in 1922 through the eyes of one woman. I was half out of my mind thinking of all the money I owed the bank, which financed the purchase of the hotel. And I now saw the possibility of the whole place going up in smoke. Annie Farrington, the proprietor of Barry's Hotel in Dublin, left a witness statement with the Bureau of Military History. In it, she describes how her hotel was seized and occupied by the anti-treaty IRA right when the conflict officially began, when the National Army began bombarding the forecourts. They had the doors barricaded with my good tables and furniture. Also, beyond 2022... So we now have, I think, upwards of 120,000 historical documents. Most of these were known in their different archives, but they weren't known to be all replacements from the lost Dublin archive. We'll hear about the project to create a virtual reconstruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland. It was an 11-month project to take everything out of the rubble, and that's how long it took, and all that material would have been exposed to the elements. At this time, a hundred years ago, tensions were building up across Ireland. The country was on the brink of civil war. On the 26th of March 1922, the IRA held a convention in the Mansion House in Dublin. The convention was a turning point for many. On the 15th of March, the provisional government had prohibited the convention. Any army officer who attended would be suspended from the army. Over 200 delegates attended that convention. They denounced the treaty, set up an executive of 16 men and repudiated the authority of Dáil Éireann. So where did those delegates from around the country stay while they were in Dublin? Well, one hotel that was very popular with the IRA was Barry's Hotel on Great Denmark Street. It was owned by Annie Farrington, who in later years left an account of what happened in those weeks leading up to the Civil War and the fighting in Dublin. Joining me this evening to talk about Annie and Barry's Hotel is historian-in-residence for South County Dublin County Council, Liz Gillis. Liz, who was Annie Farrington and how did she come to own Barry's Hotel? So uh, Annie Farrington, she was originally from Bollylug in County Wicklow and it turns out she was married to a farmer, James Farrington. But it seems that a few years after they got married, he died because he can't be found anywhere. And then Annie is working in the Luke and Spa Hotel. So that's where she begins her career in the hotels. Now, by the time of the War of Independence 1919 she was the manageress in the Crown Hotel and that hotel on O'Connell Street right beside the Gresham it was used very regularly by the IRA it was a known hotel sympathetic to them so Annie talks about in her witness statement like meeting and seeing lots of big names in the revolutionary movement like Sean McKeown Dan Breen in one instance she's talking about Dan Breen and a lot of the lads who'd been pretty much on the run. They they turn up the hotel begging for a room to stay and she manages to, to sort them out. So Annie herself becomes known to the Republicans. And then she actually buys Barry's Hotel just up the road on Great Denmark Street from Miss O'Dea, who herself was sympathetic to the Republicans. So Annie brings four people with her 
and then goes to a hotel which was also open to Republicans. But she bought that at the time of the truce, just a couple of weeks before the truce in July 1921 and then moves in literally weeks before the Civil War breaks out in June 1922. But it's known, Annie Farrington and her hotels, um, they were known to be safe places for Republicans to go to. In her witness statement, Annie recalls the atmosphere in Barry's Hotel at the time of the IRA convention and uh, some of the guests who stayed there. I went into residence in Barry's Hotel a couple of weeks before the IRA convention, which took place in March 1922. We had a dreadful crowd of guests for that occasion, a lot of them from Galway in the West. There was terrific excitement. There was great diversity of views and they were arguing it out. They never came to blows. I remember especially a man called Mr Kennedy from Dunmore, County Galway, who spoke very strongly against the treaty. The discussions were very heated, but I had no time to listen to them as we were so busy trying to keep the meals and the beds going and we did not yet know our way about too well. The convention visitors remained for a few days. Many of those came back again in May and remained until the fighting started in June. They were lovely people to have in the house. They were so well behaved. Moss Toomey and Dick Barrett, who were very jolly, commandeered Jim Joyce's car and drove us out to Hote and Malahide, past Jim's own place. They had commandeered a whole lot of cars as well as Jim's. He was not staying at Barry's at that time. At that time, they had their headquarters at Parnell Square. Later, they marched to the forecourts from Barry's. They formed up outside the hotel. Now, Liz, Annie must have thought that uh, she could get on with running her business, um, the Barry's Hotel, having bought Barry's Hotel, seeing that the IRA had left, but that wasn't the case because they came back. Yeah, um, so you, as she says, like the, the IRA, the Street IRA move out, they go to Parnell Square for the headquarters there and then, of course, occupy the forecourts. But then once the attack on the forecourts happened on the 28th of June, the Dublin Brigade of the IRA were given the order to mobilise. So while you've got like the 1st Battalion in the forecourts, the toured force and so on, they're all told, right, take over these buildings by Oscar Trainer. So there's just like a whole load of public houses and and hotels being taken over so they come back to Annie they come back to Barry's hotel At the outbreak of the Civil War the first place attacked in the north side was the Fowler Hall which was occupied by the Republicans Within an hour our own hotel was occupied by the Republicans and the Citizen Army Madame Markovich was in charge of the Citizen Army and the leaders of the Republicans were there from time to time including De Valera and Barton There were other women there too, but I did not know them. This was on the Tuesday morning and the leaders were there till Wednesday night. They established their headquarters in the dining room. The first thing they did was to knock all the glass out of the doors and windows. They sandbagged the windows and stuck guns out between the bags. They allotted different rooms to the various purposes. They cleared out all the visitors, about 40, giving them barely time to pack their bags. They cleared out the staff, but I refused to go. And Miss Kyo and William the Porter stayed with me. The headquarters staff left on Wednesday night and took over the Hammond, but they left a garrison in Barry's. 
and again our, our, our account is fantastic because she's there witnessing this and she can't stop them she can't stop the them actually turning her brand new hotel into a stronghold in the middle of a war zone what's going to be a war zone and of course it wasn't just the IRA it was also the Irish Citizens Army showed up with Countess Markovich oh yeah yeah so about 100 people turn up to Barry's Hotel so Oscar Trainer is there and like Big names. Carl Brew was there at one stage. De Valera was there at one stage. And then Markovich and a contingent of the Irish Citizen Army turned up with much needed rifle ammunition. About 3,000 rounds of ammunition they, they came with. And they're there and it's again all of these people to and from because the battle is raging at the forecourt. So Oscar Trainer is trying to decide what to do. There's people coming and going. There are some guests in our hotel. They're then told to get out and yourself is told to get out. But um, she refuses point blank. She ain't going anywhere. Must have been an awful shock to her when they all came back. And, uh, you know, it must have been going through her head that the hotel could be attacked at any moment. Oh, big time. And I suppose this is a part of the, the Civil War narrative that we're not getting because we have it from, you know, the, the pro and anti-treaty people, the combatants. But what was it like for civilians at this time? So there we have Annie who literally bought her new hotel, probably something that she had aimed for for years. And she realises that. And as soon as she's getting sorted and just starting now, it's taken over and they're using everything to barricade the, the building. So like our, the, the tables, the furniture and it's good furniture. You know, she's invested in this and they're putting rifles out windows and everything else. And she's just standing there watching this. But the reality was, if that building went up and there was every possibility that the building could go because there was lots of explosives in mm. the building, she was still going to have to pay the bank. And that is what keeps her there. She was not going anywhere. And she didn't stay there by herself. Um, her porter, William Ingram, he refused to leave. And I think there was another girl that stayed where. And William was very, very loyal to Annie because he was a porter in regression. Jordan War of Independence was a volunteer, was arrested after Bloody Sunday, was imprisoned, but when released, couldn't get his job back in the Gresham. So Annie employed him in the Crown and he went with her to Barry's Hotel. So she's watching fellas, she knows, doing this to our building, to our premises. OK, let's hear from the witness statement, Annie talking about watching all her best furniture being used for barricades. We were not allowed to pass through the rooms they occupied. I can't remember how we put in our time during the occupation. I was half out of my mind thinking of all the money I owed the bank, which financed the purchase of the hotel. And I now saw the possibility of the whole place going up in smoke. This was the reason I refused to leave, although they pointed out the risk I was running by staying. I cannot remember anything about those days because I was so distraught. They had the doors barricaded with my good tables and furniture. They did not use the door opposite Rutland Place for fear of being fired on, but they opened up the door of the second house. At each side of the inner hall, which this door led into, they bored holes for guns. They did all their cooking in the kitchen. I never went near it. Miss Kyo, or somebody else, used to bring me up a pot of tea. Now, eventually the garrison does leave, so that must have been a relief for her, but they'd still left her in a rather precarious position, didn't they? Yeah, because again, it's the thing that, you know, right, they're told to evacuate, but they were told also to mind the building. 
because then if the pro-treaty troops tried to enter the building to search it, then they were going to be to, to blow up the building. Now, Annie sees this and she begs them, she begs them, please don't lay the mines, don't connect the mines. And luckily enough, the guy that was ordered to do it didn't. So he didn't actually connect or he disconnected the mine so at least the building wouldn't go up. However, there was a lot of damage done to the building. They bored holes in the walls because you've got other hotels that are occupied by the Ann Street IRA, Morins and Hughes. And once they were attacked by the pro-treaty forces in Barry's Hotel, they start to, you know, knock holes through them, the walls. Something similar to what they did at the block so they could go through and to and fro the different buildings and have escape This routes. is Moore Street 1916, basically. Exactly. Mm. They don't learn anything in 1916. <laughs> so luckily enough, as you say, for Annie, one anti-treaty man, this is again from her witness statement, did not follow orders. When Morn's Hotel, which was also occupied by the Republicans, was being shelled, the garrison in Barry's began boring holes in the walls of the houses at each side of the hotel to assure a way of escape in case of an attack. As I went up the stairs, I saw them at this work, but when I came down a short time afterwards, they had got word to leave the hotel. They cleared out, advising us to go with them as they were leaving landmines, one under the front door and another under the roof in the top storey. They left guns sticking out the windows when they were going. However, the three of us stayed. I asked the man who was preparing the mines to cut the wires if that was humanly possible, but that if he had to do his duty, he could do it but that we were staying. We knelt down to pray, and I believe I said prayers that were never heard before or since. The man at the mines touched me on the shoulder and said, It is all right, miss. I have detached them. Before they left, they went very hard on us to throw in our lot with them and take our chances with the other women of come and the man who were with them. I said, If the house is going up, I will go up with it. We have nowhere else to go. When they left our place, William bolted all the doors and I went around all the rooms, switched on the lights and pulled in the guns, about a dozen of them, from the windows and stuck them up the chimney in the smoke room. They were found by the Free State soldiers when they came, I think on the following morning. William protested at my putting on all the lights, saying that it was asking for trouble. When the garrison left, either Miss Kyo or William suggested putting out a white flag to save us from being shelled. But I refused, saying I would rather be blown up. We were not attacked by the Free State Army, although they searched the place and took away any arms that were left. I had gathered up various papers containing lists of names of the whole garrison and instructions issued during the occupation. Despite the anti-treaty IRA leaving the hotel, Annie's troubles were far from over, as uh, once again she recalls in her witness statement. The night after the garrison left, a couple of fellows, probably thinking there was nobody in the house, broke into loot. Miss Kyo, myself and the cook had brought our beds downstairs to the dining room, where there was a lift to the kitchen. We heard a noise and I went to the lift where we distinctly heard voices. We were afraid to go down, so we called William, and Miss Kyo opened the front door and asked a passer-by for help. He said he would send somebody up from the corner. Four or five Free State soldiers came with a machine gun, 
some of them went down the kitchen stairs and called upon the intruders to come out. Instead, they retreated to the scullery under the area steps. The soldier with the machine gun took a position on the steps of the other house and fired. We heard a most awful scream and the soldiers went into the scullery and brought out the three looters. One of them was wounded by a bullet which entered through the mouth into the brain. They brought him to the matter, I think in an ambulance, where he died almost immediately. So what happened, Annie, after the fighting ended, Liz? Well, she, fair play to her that she's dead in the hotel, so the building was intact, but there was a lot of damage done. And so she had to now, you know, get on with the business of reopening the hotel. But where was the money going to come from? Now, there was a lot of compensation claims put in. She did get some compensation, but she had to literally hit the ground running. She's she's taken in guests while they're still, you know, the, the windows are boarded up. She just had to get things back on track, which she did. Now, the compensation that she got, she said herself it, it wasn't enough because at that time so much damage was done in Dublin City like the whole upper part of O'Connell Street was gone so contractors could charge whatever they wanted for the work that needs to be done so she was overcharged and the compensation that she gets it was very little to, to compensate what she had actually paid out for the work and she she ran Barry's Hotel as a very, very successful business. It was always a hotel that was popular with JA fans. You know, there's photographs of her at one of the, the hurling championships with the Kerry team and she's there right slap bang in the middle and they'd all go and stay in the hotel. And she actually died in the hotel in 1961. Barry's was our life. She was very, very loyal to it. She never left it, neither in the Civil War. It took Annie's death to get her out of Barry's Hotel. And she's uh, she's buried in Esker Cemetery. Close to where she began her career in the hotel business, as you say, in the Luke and Spa Hotel. Why finally do you think the somebody in the Bureau of Military History was inspired to go and ask her for a statement? Well, the thing about Annie, and this is where Annie is, is, is brilliant, because when the anti-treaty IRA left, so Annie talks about pulling out the guns, pulling the guns in from the windows, because it would look like there were snipers. So she and William and the other girl are pulling the windows, trying to basically say, we're, they're not here, we're not threat. But the other thing she did was she collected all the documents that were left there and she donated them to military archives. Now they have the contemporary documents collection and this is where you'll find what Annie donated. And this is a snapshot of life in Barry's Hotel because you've got the names of people that were in Barry's Hotel. You've got the amount of ammunition, the amount of explosive that they had. Like they named rooms. There's one called the Better Roll and in Kamenum there's a cell with graffiti written above it inscribed in the wall that's called the Better Roll and there's the four names of the guys on a piece of paper that was on this door in Barry's Hotel. So Annie could have burnt those documents. Hmm. She didn't. Well I mean she turns the weapons over to the Free State Army but she didn't turn the documents over. Not yet. Not yet. She seemed to wait for her for a while, but thank God she did because they are brilliant. So if anyone hasn't seen them and wants to see them, they're not digitised, make an appointment with Military Archives. Annie Farrington, Contemporary Documents Collection. Uh, they're just brilliant. Brilliant. Mm. OK, we'll leave it there, Liz. Thank you very much indeed. Annie Farrington, definitely a formidable woman who stood her ground for her to protect her livelihood in time of war. Liz Gillis, thank you very much.
After the break, I'll be joined by Kieran Wallace and Zoe Reid to talk about the project to virtually recreate the Public Record Office of Ireland, which was destroyed during the Battle of Dublin in 1922. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Well, we've just been hearing Annie Farrington's perspective on the Battle of Dublin and the outbreak of the Irish Civil War, as she recounted in her witness statement to the Bureau of Military History. Let's hear now a voice from the RTE Radio Archives. At the end of June 1922, Emmett Dalton was in command of the Free State troops assaulting the forecourts during the Battle of Dublin. He was attempting to dislodge the anti-treaty IRA militants who had occupied the building since April. Here he's speaking about how the building's occupiers were finally forced to surrender and the destruction of the public records office in the western block of the Forecourts complex. Speaking now from memory, it was a couple of days before it became evident to me that we were not going to have any surrender from the people inside the forecourts because it was obvious that they were sheltering down in the basements and not being affected by the gunfire, which literally was only making holes against the wall or going through the occasional window in the building. So I decided then that it would have to be done by mounting a, an onslaught onto the building. So we put a gun at the other end of the forecourts near the church. There's a street at the back there behind the forecourts hotel and we fired to make a gap in the railings at that side so where we could uh, infiltrate the place and charge, make a charge by the infantry. Everything was set in order. But it should be remembered that the, uh, the garrison of the forecourts at this time had mined and undermined the entire building. And particularly, they had uh, mined uh, a records office where documents of irreplaceable documents were being kept. Be that as it may, anyhow, whatever damage was done by the the artillery was minimal. The real damage to the forecourts was done when they exploded the mines inside, uh, which destroyed the building and destroyed a great many irreplaceable articles. There we heard the voice of Emmett Dalton, one of the officers in charge of the attack on anti-treaty forces in the forecourts in June 1922, the event that signalled the beginning of the Irish Civil War. He was talking there about the destruction of seven centuries of records that were housed in the records treasury at the forecourts. The decade of centenaries has seen many projects carried out by our archives and historical institutions in connection with the events of 100 years ago. In 2018, one of the biggest and possibly most difficult projects was announced beyond 2022, Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. We covered it on the History Show back then. The aim was to rebuild virtually the public records office and the records that were destroyed. Joining me now to discuss how the project is progressing are Dr. Kieran Wallace, Deputy Director of Beyond 2022, and Zoe Reid, Keeper of Records at the National Archives in Ireland. And you're both very welcome indeed to the History Show. Kieran, um, you came on the programme, you talked with us about this back in uh, 2018 when the project was really only beginning. It was a sort of a gleam in, in your eye and in other people's eyes as well. Looking back, did you have any idea what a mammoth task that you had ahead of you 
And I suppose the, the follow-up question, which I'll ask straight away, is where are you now with the project? Well, did we know what the mammoth task was? Uh, it was a gleam in Peter Crooks's eye and uh, we had some suspicion from doing early scoping that there was a lot out there, more than people anticipated. But uh, research by its very nature is unknowable. So we headed out into the into the wild jungle and found tons of stuff. Um, thank goodness there's more than just Peter Crooks and I on it now and uh, the late Shay Lawless, who is the other founding idea behind it. It has become a team of, I think we have up to 15 people now at certain times, between archivists, historians, computer scientists, all beavering away, working with all our partners and sort of allies in, in the work. Where are we now with it? Um, we're in a different place than we thought, partly because of COVID, but also because of more success in certain areas than we anticipated. When we began, we thought we knew we had one particularly rich batch of information on the medieval period. And we were going to call that our gold seam or like our shiny jewel that we knew we had in, in hand as replacement records for lost medieval records. But in the course of our work, we discovered two more gold seams, if you like, um, on the Cromwellian era and on the late 17th, late 18th century uh, religious census. And the amount of completion and the amount of replacement materials for those is particularly rich, as well as bits and pieces of many, many other things. So we now have, I think, upwards of 120,000 historical documents. Most of these were known in their different archives, but they weren't known to be all replacements from the lost Dublin archive. And being able to bring them back together suddenly sort of brings us this sort of, you know, a, a leap ahead in the, in the work that we were doing. So we're at a place now where we're, we're good to go for our launch at the end of June and beyond. And I don't want to be negative. Any disappointments, any areas where you thought, OK, we're probably going to make progress here and you've discovered maybe not so much? I suppose the... The probably, I wouldn't overstate as much as probably we hoped or we had this hope that we might find, you know, a chunk of the 19th century census somewhere, the statutory census. And we are probably the thousandth people to have tried to investigate this. And they really, what the National Archives has found is what there is to be found. Mm. And there really is nothing beyond that. In disappointments, I think, no, because we were following threads that were laid down in the 1920s by the early archivists straight after the fire, they had a reasonable idea of what the lines of avenues, avenues of investigation should be. And we followed those up. So I think, no, there'd be no, actually, no disappointments. I mean, more maps than we thought, more uh, court records, more wills than we thought. I don't make it sound too big a boast, but like the amount of stuff we found, the problem has been one of scale, not one right. of lack. And is it still a 10-year project? <laughs> this was my, uh, we said this before we had any state funding whatsoever. Um, at that stage, when we spoke last in 2018, Peter and Shay and I were going for some state funding, which the state came through under the decade of centenaries programme. They funded us through to the end of this year to get up to the centenary and a bit beyond. We now know already, and the let's say the funders are aware that there are new threads of information coming towards us that we couldn't, just physically couldn't get to in time. So we'll show everybody everything we have by June. But we know there are other, let's, let's call them sort of unopened boxes uh, in different repositories around the world that certainly merit a couple of years' research, more than a few years' research to, to bring them to the public. Um, Zoe, one part of the project obviously is looking for records in archives around the world and it's a virtual uh, project. Uh, uh, but records were actually salvaged from the ruins and as a senior conservator at the National Archives, you and your team's job has been to look at the documents that were collected from the ruins. Tell us about that project and where that's brought you. Where that's brought us is, again, with a lot more documents that we th than we thought. 
I suppose the exciting thing for us was whenever I first came into the National Archives uh, 20 years ago, I was pretty much always told about the salved collections. And these were boxes of brown paper parcels of stuff that had been lifted out of the forecourts, but nobody had ever really worked on and looked at. And again, the decade of centenary was that perfect positioning of can we do something with this material and what would we do with it? So that was always a known to be there. And then also we've looked back as well and I think it was unjust to say that nothing happened between the 1920s until the early 2000s. And so bits and pieces by the archivists and historians who worked previously had been done on various things that had come out of the Four Courts Fire. But the project we embarked on in 2017 was very much looking at those unopened parcels, about 378 of them, and opening them up and finding out what was inside. And we're not talking about charred remains, are we? We are. Oh, we are talking about We are about talking charred about charred remains, remains in some cases. Yeah. Um, and that was a partly... The really exciting thing about the project was... I'd imagine you have to open them very carefully if they're charred remains. You have to open them very carefully and it was a little bit like Christmas for the team who were doing them because you just didn't know what each parcel was going to bring. In some cases, it was material that was actually in very good condition and that's led us to our thinking, you know, where was it in the building in 1922 when the fire happened? And then there was other material that is literally... I mean, they use charred remains for a reason. It looks like it came out of the grate of a fire. Mm. In many ways, it did. 25,000 pieces of paper or parchment. Because yes. when we think of archives, you know, we tend to think of paper. Yeah. Uh, we tend to think of, you know, A4 paper. But you're talking here also about parchment. So what does parchment look like when it comes out of a massive fire? A crispy pompadour. <laughs> Quite simply. Um, if you think of it, you take it back. So most of the parchment, if you think parchment is animal skin, so it's reacted to the heat of a fire in a very different way to paper. Paper's been kind of baked by the fire. Parchment dries out. The moisture comes out of it. And so it shrinks and contracts and distorts because if you think of what the parchment makers would have done when they made the parchment it was to take animal skin and stretch it to make it flat so you could write on it. So think of that when you get Indian takeaway Indian food yes. the bit that they include which you didn't ask for exactly. the pompadoms. pompadoms that's what they look like because they're distorted because the heat has affected them in different ways and that depends on how they were stored how they were rolled a lot of the medieval parchments were many long large sheets of documents that were then rolled together that's how they stored them they didn't put them in a binding they didn't put them in a folder or a file they rolled them and so that has then sort of had a sort of play on how the parchment reacted to the fire. And presumably you can't just sort of sprinkle water over it and suddenly it sort of opens like a like a chrysalis and, no, and there it is all before you. Not quite sprinkling water, but you can introduce water to it in a very gentle way. And, well, that's, ha- what and that's what you have to do, that's isn't it? That's what you have to do. You have to think about it exactly that. You you want to try and rehydrate them. So, so it's the opposite of dehumidifying. Exactly. It's rehumidifying, it's, it's isn't humidification. it? It's humidification. All right. And what you do is I've... If you ever get to come into the National Archives, I'm the place and the, the space in there that has the most fun and the most toys. Because I've got all these gizmos and bits of equipment and kit that help me do exactly that. So the rehumidification, I've got, as the best way to describe it, and Kieran knows this well, it looks a bit like an incubator. It's like a, a dome that sits on top of a table. And I plug in what is a scientific version of a facial, you know, a facial, something that will take moisture, take water and turn it into a vapour. Then I put my parchment pieces inside it. I can monitor them as I see the moisture slowly going back into the documents to make them soft and supple. So then I can start to manipulate them, reshape them. And as they dry, I hold them in place with magnets. And that works. That helps them 
sort of get flat again so people like Kieran can come in and read them and look at them. So you can actually physically, Kieran, you can go in and you can actually physically read these. It's It's been amazing. It is my favourite visit. I'm sure Zoe must be fed up with us saying, can we see one more? But when you see the the results come out from what were crisped and crumpled things into... Now, sometimes they need a medievalist with Latin to read them because they tend to be the older type of records. But certainly when uh, when, when we're back to things like Open Day and Culture Night and so forth and they come back to the National Archives in public, it's if you're in Dublin, it's the best visit you can go on to see those. But to see a document that you know was six, seven hundred years old, was through a fire, was bundled up for a century, came out and mm. is now legible again. And you think that the scribe who wrote that, he or she possibly put that pen mark on that ink, on that paper, on that parchment in 1300. This is absolutely uh, chilling. And obviously your project is a virtual uh, project. Yes. I mean, Zoe's is an actual project. Yes. So presumably what you want to do is then digitise that material. Right. So what we do is we would digitise that material, anything that's that's legible. So basically we while Zoe is working at the materiality, the physical substance of the of the records, we're interested in the words on the paper or the words on the parchment. So while we're not a mass digitisation project, we don't aim to digitise entire libraries. We find to find the best stuff, the juiciest stuff, the most legible stuff and digitise it and make it available. So we're making decisions all the time, like if there's a, a record written in Latin and we would have to digitise it and then translate it and make it available to the public. That might take a lot of work and might not be a huge amount of history in it. But if it's something that came through the fire, by its very nature, the public want to see it. So we they always get sort of top priority. But yes, we're always looking for replacement materials, copies, transcripts made before 1922. They're in archives and libraries all around the world. We're getting huge cooperation from scores of libraries. We have, I mean, apart from our five core partners, the National Archives in Dublin, Public Record Office Northern Ireland, National Archives in the UK, Trinity Library and the Irish Manuscripts Commission, We've like over 60 different archives and libraries, cathedrals, county libraries, archives and schools, giving us stuff, giving us digital images of stuff that we're able to weave together on a digital platform so the public can see it as if it was all back on the shelves in the forecourts in 1921. What about paper material then? I mean, I'm sure the FBI in Quantico or whatever could (laughs) make something out of a piece of burnt paper and they could possibly even read what was written on it. Can you do can you do that kind of thing? We're not pushing it quite that far just yet. We can do an awful lot with the paper that is maybe singed and burnt around the edges. Um, if you think about paper documents, they tend to have been folded. So sometimes you'll have burn marks in the centre of something and the rest of it is okay. Again, the element and what we're dealing with with the paper is maybe not so much the burnt, it's the mould and the kind of the mushed. So don't forget, it was an 11-month project to take everything out of the rubble. And that's how long it took. And all that material would have been exposed to the elements and would have become water damaged. So an awful lot sometimes of what we're doing from the paper end of things is stuff that was in big blocks and kind of has become very distorted and very, very dirty and very kind of uh, crumpled and creased because of that element as opposed to the fire. The brittle stuff is brittle. As yet, nobody has come up with something or some way of getting anything back into those fibres which have just become very short and do just want to crumble. There are different things that we're looking at in terms of trying to look at things that you can't open. 
and there's huge technology within the conservation research and heritage research field in terms of a thing called X-ray tomography, which is basically taking something and X-raying it lots and lots of time and then trying to unroll it, unwrap it, um, a bit like the Dead Sea Scrolls or there's a large project in TNA at the minute with unopened letters. They're doing that there. So you can do that sort of thing. But what we're doing is very much the physical, making sure that we are doing the work to facilitate the researchers, that the documents can be opened up, they can be handled safely and they can be read. Kieran, tell me about the 1766 religious census. What is it and uh, what have you found and how have you found it? Well, it's this is one of these uh, genealogical resources that's known. So you'll see it on a lot of genealogy websites. It's on people know of it. It was a an attempt by the Irish House of Lords to measure the population of the country by religious denomination. So the Church of Ireland bishops in each diocese sent word out to their clergy to say, go and count all the Catholics, Protestants, Presbyterians and other sort of uh, uh, dissenting populations. The desire was to have heads of households. So they'd name the head of each household, which was generally a man at that time. And so you'd get a list of, let's say, 20 families of whom X were Protestant, X were Catholic with the head of household there. In some cases, the clergy went and listed the individuals in the household that was going beyond. In other cases, they just counted and said, literally, there are 14 Catholic families and eight Protestant families and three Presbyterian families. So all this information was fed back into the House of Lords who started to compile reports. Those reports were stored in the Public Record Office. Many of them lost, but many of them survived. But what's more important is very many of the originals before 22 were copied and they were copied and the copies were stored in a lot, were stored in Belfast in Prony and in the representative church body, the Church of Ireland Library and Archive uh, here in Dublin and other venues. People know about them, but no one's ever tried to draw it all together into one sort of super replacement collection. And once my colleague Brian Gurren got stuck into this work and he's like a a man machine for doing this, um, he's been pulling together records and even like one single sheet, add it into the bundle and you get this entire map of the country of where there is coverage. In the absence of the 19th century statutory census, which is all lost forever, being able to go backwards a step into the late 18th century and understand the religious makeup of townlands, of parishes, of dioceses, and very often have names. I mean, we are getting, I think we have perhaps as many as half of the originals. We've come to placements for almost half of the original 1766 census How many of the, of the censuses did we actually lose in the forecourts? Because I know some of the material was actually pulped during yeah. the First yeah. World War, yeah. so it's not all down no. to uh, the, the forecourts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I could stand to be corrected by Zoe on this, um, if I, <laughs> I, I gather it's the, the pre-famine, so 1821 yep. through to 1851 50. yep. were in the building, and yep. then post-famine, so the Post, like later 19th century have been deliberately pulped by policy although we, I now know that the, the archivists at the time were aghast at this policy and were trying to stop it but it had actually gone ahead and been destroyed by the time the archivists got a chance to try and stop it. So, so we're, we're stuck with, we're I mean, stuck. we're very yeah. grateful yeah. to have 1901 and 1911 Indeed. and they are Indeed. an absolutely fantastic uh, resource. When people go to the website, what are they, what, what do they experience? What are they going to be experienced? What is your hope when the project finishes that they will be able to experience? They'll have two ways in, if you like. One way in, which is the exciting way in, is the virtual reality model of the destroyed building. So the building itself had a front portion, which was the administrative office that was badly damaged and repurposed now as the Court of Appeal. The back part of the building, the record treasury, was the purpose-built archive completely destroyed. No one alive today was ever inside that building. 
we've, through OPW plans held in the National Archives, through some very rare photographs, we've made a virtual reality model of the entire complex. You can go around it, through it, in it, go along the shelves and the floors, see the reading room as it was. And that'll be like an exhibition space. I think people who might not be attracted to walk into an archive automatically will enjoy the virtual reality model. I think younger people, children will enjoy the virtual reality model. It leads you through to the normal website. But people can go past the VR straight to the normal website. You can search by by any search terms you want. You can filter by date if you're particularly interested in the early 19th century or the famine, whatever. The big collections I mentioned, the medieval exchequer, the Cromwellian land records and the 1766 census will have their own sort of big buttons that you can zoom in on those because they're particularly rich and deep. But every word we have, everything, like, it's not just finding records by the label at the top of the page. We will have transcriptions of over 50 million words of print and manuscript writing. So it's both print and handwritten that would be searchable. So you can put in a place name, a person name, a concept, a theme, a sheriff, whatever you like, and it'll bring back the hits. Where there's a digital replacement, you'll be presented with a digital replacement and it'll show you where it lives, if it lives in the Bodleian in Oxford or in the Huntington in California or in the National Archives in Bishop Street in Dublin. And if we don't have a replacement, it'll show you whatever we know about the record as it was before 22, with a sort of a little sort of blank uh -uh kind of logo saying, sorry, no joy, this so far but it may turn up in future research. Mm. But what we'll be able to show, we're excited to see people's reaction. I think there's more there than people anticipate. And Zoe, the actual material, obviously it's all going to be digitised, it'll all be up there, which will be accessible to anybody who wants to consult it. But where is the actual material? What happens to it? The actual material is still in the National Archives in Bishop Street and it's been beautifully conserved and with careful consideration it will be accessible. Will it be on display at some point? It's too early to say mm. whether or not we've just completed one very successful exhibition and that was our first on the treaty. I think it's too early to say yet whether we will actually have a full exhibition. We kind of hope to going forward. Because no. I would imagine some of these parchment documents are actually quite beautiful. They and are. People so, would love yeah. to actually physically see them. Yes, yeah, some of the parchment documents that are beyond my skill set in terms of conservation will be staying as they are. And some of them do look incredible and they look almost like bits of coral reef because of the way that the parchment has contracted and, and is shaped now. Those, no, they'll be closed, but we have done some high-level photography um, of those and we'll make those accessible. And, and we've, we've realised with the stuff that's very badly damaged, um, there's such an interest in it that if we're developing any sort of list or finding aids to this material, that photography has given us that way into people still being able to see it, but not actually handle it and cause it any further damage. The stuff that's being conserved and is in good condition and can be accessed by researchers, it'll be the same policy that the National Archives always had come into the Bishop Street and call it up and hopefully you'll get to see it sitting at a reading room desk. And Kieran, the project, the official, tell me about the official launch of the uh, the project and events surrounding Sorry. that. Through May, we'll have two events in May, one on the 4th of May, which is looking at the Chief Secretary's papers and their really important set of papers covering the entire island of Ireland. And that's a, an online event between Public Record Office Northern Ireland and National Archives Ireland. 26th of May, we have a very special Conservation Day, which is always deeply involved in, and that's conservators from the National Archives London, National Archives in Ireland and Public Record Office Northern Ireland talking about different conservation techniques and what conservators have learned about the sort of the techniques they can do to retrieve and to bring records back from the edge. Then it leads up to the actual launch. So our state launch is on Monday the 27th of June, and that's when the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland will be out. People might have heard of us as Beyond 2022. You can conceive of that as being 
in the construction firm, the research crowd, <laughs> the thing we're building is the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. It'll be free, online, aimed to be used by everyone from school children through genealogists, professional researchers, local historians. And the entirety of what we have to show will be shown on the 27th of June. And that week through to the 30th of June, we'll have other events on to sort of back up the actual initial launch. There, are, We have an artist in residence. We'll be looking at artistic responses to cultural loss and so forth. So um, I'd say the best thing to do is to watch our website and our Twitter feed. So from the end of June, if you want to access it, it'll be virtualtreasury.ie? Virtualtreasury.ie. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, from the end of June. But that, at the moment, that, that website is, is closed until the reveal on the 27th. Yeah. yeah, OK. It's beyond beyond uh, 2022 at the, mo- .ie at the moment. Well, obviously, you've been unable to digitise and conserve everything, although you are slowly but surely uh, getting there. But just like your predecessors in 1922, you've left a lot of work, I suppose, for future conservators and future generations and historians to continue the work for years to come. Zoe Reid and uh, Kieran Wallace, we wish you all the best with the, the procedure, with the project, with the launch, and we'll put up details of the events that Kieran mentioned on our website. Thank you both very much indeed for talking to us on The History Show. Thank Thanks, you. Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we've time for on this series of the show. This will be our last history show for a while, but we'll be back in the autumn with another run of episodes. In the meantime, details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. A quick word before we go about a history documentary that's coming up soon on RTE television. Shackleton's Cabin tells the story of Sven Haberman, a historical object conservator based in Connemara, with a passion for the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In a fascinating twist of fate, Ernest Shackleton's cabin from his final expedition to the Antarctic on board the Quest has ended up in Sven's workshop in Letterfrack, awaiting restoration. This is a heartwarming film about a friendship across time and getting close to your hero through a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Shackleton's Cabin will go out on RTE1 television on Bank Holiday Monday, the 2nd of May, at 6.30pm. My thanks tonight to Kieran Dunn and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Kira Clancy. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>